Welcome back, one and all, to the Unknown Friends Book Review Podcast. I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson from Kitty Wayne Productions, and I am delighted that you've joined me for today's episode. Thank you so much. You are listening to episode 10 of the podcast's third season, and this year we are discussing trilogies. So far, we've covered Kristen Lovren's Daughter, 100 Cupboards, and The House of Earth, three wildly different trilogies. And today we're launching a new trio of episodes covering Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, definitely the most famous and influential trilogy I have reviewed so far this season. It had a monumental impact on Western literature and thought. So even if you've not read it or read all of it, you've undoubtedly heard of The Divine Comedy, composed of three parts, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, and I'm going to thoroughly enjoy discussing Dante's work here on the podcast over the next few weeks, and I hope you enjoy it as well. And I really hope you read The Divine Comedy for yourself, uh, perhaps reading along as I discuss the three parts week by week. So to try to situate the discussions we'll be having over the next three episodes, I will briefly try to share the basics about Dante's life. Dante Alighieri lived at an interesting moment in history, essentially right before the Renaissance began. Um, in fact, many would say his work helped start the Renaissance. So he was born in the year 1265 and died in 1321. He lived in Florence, Italy, and that is precisely where the Renaissance was eventually born, where a large number of writers and artists and scholars were collected in the 13 and 1400s, and their interest in ancient Latin and Greek texts and their desire to revive and improve on ancient philosophy and literature um, was what sparked what we now call the Renaissance, which literally means a rebirth. Now, the Renaissance proper didn't really get underway until the 1400s, but um, in Dante's writings a century earlier, we can already see the seeds of things that would take root and blossom in later years. So Dante lived from 1265 to 1321. His mother died when he was a child, and his father died when Dante was still quite a young man, but he had been very well educated and he was not left destitute. He had some property from his father, and Dante was motivated and ambitious. He was already writing poetry as a teenager and even sending it to respected poets of his day to try to get um, some feedback or support from them. And of course, today, we know Dante from history as a great writer, but in his own time, he was also keenly interested in politics and philosophy and religion, and he entered politics himself at age 30 in 1295. But politics in Italy and in Florence specifically had become dangerous waters in the 1290s. There were two main factions at this time, um, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, the former supporting the supremacy of the Pope and the latter the supremacy of the Holy Roman Emperor. 
Long story short, Dante had some strong opinions on these topics, and he quickly became an influential and powerful figure in Florentine politics, but almost as quickly uh, his legs were kicked out from under him. He basically got tricked and double-crossed and then condemned for things he had not done on completely trumped-up charges, and... Ultimately, he was exiled from Florence in 1302, and he was never able to return for the rest of his life. So then the last 20 years of his life were nothing like what he had envisioned for himself. At first, he spent a lot of time just trying to get back into Florence, trying to exonerate himself, but before long, he really began to pour himself into writing. He wrote poetry as well as writings exploring literary theory and moral and political philosophy. And then from probably about 1306, nearly until his death in 1321, he was working on his masterpiece, The Divine Comedy. Now, Dante did not call his own comedy divine. That adjective was actually added years later after Dante's death. He titled his own work, The Comedy of Dante Alighieri, A Florentine by Birth, Not Character. That was the full title. Now, why it is called a comedy? Two main reasons, and humor really has nothing to do with it. Um, How we moderns understand the word comedy is a very recent conception. Traditionally, Um, classically, a comedy was pretty simply a story that began sad and ended happily. It began in darkness and ended in light. Tragedy, in contrast, uh, begins in light and ends in darkness. Tragedy tells a story of downfall, whereas comedy tells a story of progress and elevation, a rise from adversity to prosperity. So these are the classical definitions of tragedy and comedy. So Dante called his work a comedy because it begins with the hero in confusion and fear and leads him along a journey that ends in joy and freedom. So that's the number one reason the work is called a comedy. But the other reason is also worth noting. Part of, again, the traditional definition of tragedy and comedy is the language or style of the writing. Tragic works are written in lofty, poetic, scholarly language. Comic works are written in the language of everyday people, in the vernacular. Dante made a pretty bold choice when he decided to write his epic poem of a journey through hell and heaven in the language of everyday Italians. In his era, Serious works were written in Latin, but Dante felt strongly about the importance of writing in a language that ordinary people could read and understand. So this is one of those things that became so important during the Renaissance, making literature and art accessible, not just to great scholars, but also to the public, to people who didn't know Latin. So Dante was being somewhat revolutionary when he wrote his very serious, very philosophical and poetic piece of literature in the vernacular, 
the Italian that people spoke every day. And so that's the other reason he called it a comedy in the classical sense. It has an upward trajectory moving from darkness into light, and it's written in the language of the common people. Now, that said, the Divine Comedy is still impressively uh, cerebral and elaborate and finely structured, and it does not sound at all like the vernacular to us reading an English translation 700 years later. The work is one very long poem, a narrative poem, an epic poem in the technical sense, and it is also a rhyming poem, by the way, unlike most other epics, such as Homer's or Virgil's. Um, it is a little bit easier to rhyme in Italian than it is in Greek or Latin, I'm told, um, just thanks to the nature of the language. But still, just just think about that for a second. The Divine Comedy is one huge rhyming poem, over 14,000 lines. And the rhyming pattern is very specific, and in fact, Dante invented it. It's called terza rima, and it's an interlocking pattern of rhymes that kind of revolves around tercets, which are little stanzas of three lines each. So it's all very intricate and very intentional on Dante's part. And in truth, the whole epic poem is structured in layers of threes, everything from these small-scale tercets to the big picture stuff. The poem obviously has three parts, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, and each of those three parts contains 33 subparts called cantos, which basically means songs in Italian. So that adds up to 99 cantos plus one introductory canto at the beginning of Inferno. So we have a perfect 100 cantos in total. So you can already see Dante was purposeful. He was meticulous in the writing of this poem. Every detail is thought out, and is meaningful. But to return to the big picture for a minute before I get too lost in the details, if you don't already know, or it's not already obvious from the titles of the three parts, the overall story of the Divine Comedy is a journey through hell, then purgatory, and then heaven. The Traveler is Dante himself as a character in the poem. Now, so Dante the writer is different from Dante the traveler, or Dante the pilgrim, as he's often referred to. Um, and this difference is partly because of the very specific setting of the poem. So the Divine Comedy is an imagined journey set in the year 1300. But of course, Dante, the real person, the writer, is composing this narrative several years later, looking back. So he is writing from a place of more wisdom and experience than the character Dante has in 1300. So now, would you call the Divine Comedy autobiographical? Not really, um, especially since obviously Dante never actually went on a journey through the realms of the afterlife. Um, this is all something he is purely imagining for the sake of the poem. But nonetheless, there are certain autobiographical elements. So he is looking back on his own life 10 or 15 years prior, 
the year 1300 specifically, which was very shortly before his political downfall and exile. And Dante sees his younger self as a person in need of a lot of growth, which life gave him through hardship. And all the suffering and and learning he experienced in the early 1300s kind of gets expressed through this poem, this journey that he takes. So in some ways, the Divine Comedy is a remarkably personal piece of literature. The author is writing about himself and his own growing process. At the same time, the poem is also about Dante's people and country. One of the things that makes the Divine Comedy hard to read is the fact that it is full, brimful, of references to Dante's contemporaries, local people and events that he knew or experienced personally. So I do highly recommend you read an edition of the poem that has plenty of notes to explain these references, because otherwise it is just an unfathomable sea of Italian names that will not mean anything. Um, The version I have is Anthony Esselin's translation from 2002, and it is very good. Um, A good translation with helpful footnotes. So, all that to say, the Divine Comedy is not just personal in the sense that it is kind of about Dante's own spiritual growth, but it's also personal in the sense that it's about his own time and place. It's largely about Florence and the turmoil that filled the city in this era. And as Dante the character, Dante the pilgrim, is growing and learning throughout his journey through the afterlife, so his country needs to grow and learn. The younger Dante and his homeland share some of the same flaws and need some of the same growth. So in many ways, Dante, the writer, the older Dante, is telling the story of his own suffering and growth in order to teach Florence some much-needed lessons at the same time. Now, that said, as we read, we should start to realize that many of the flaws of young Dante and of his city are actually universal. We need to learn some of the very same things that Dante the Pilgrim and his city need to learn. So ultimately, the Divine Comedy is deeply personal and profoundly universal, um, as I hope we will be able to glimpse as we discuss the poem. So I explained that the imagined journey of Dante the Pilgrim is set in the year 1300, but more specifically, the journey begins on Good Friday of that year and ends during Easter week. So the Inferno, the the first part of the pilgrim's journey, which takes him through hell, takes place over Good Friday and Holy Saturday. And then after the pilgrim makes it through the Inferno, he emerges on the morning of Easter Sunday on the lowest slopes of purgatory, which Dante pictures as a mountain. So this is significant. Um, Of course, Dante is going to pick the two darkest days of the Christian calendar as the timing for his character's journey through hell. It just fits. And then from then on, from Easter morning on, the pilgrim's journey up 
Mount Purgatory and through Paradise is an upward journey, one of spiritual growth and ever-increasing hope and love. So even though Dante did not name his own comedy divine, he did go to great lengths to infuse the poem with murmurs of the divine. Structural elements, like um, like the emphasis on the number three, this is Trinitarian, and then you have the setting of Holy Week. These kinds of things just show how seriously he is approaching this work of literature, which is already courageous and sort of superhuman in its attempt to imagine the realms of the afterlife. So now, on that note, let's let's talk a little more specifically about Inferno and Dante's depiction of hell. It really is a shame that on the rare occasions when Dante is taught in schools, it's often just the Inferno that gets taught. This is terrible because the Divine Comedy is so incomplete without Purgatorio and Paradiso. And of the three parts, um, while the Inferno might be the most dramatic, it's definitely the least pleasant to read. It's dark and exhausting and depressing, and it just does not tell the whole story. That said, it is a necessary part of the comedy, so we do need to talk about it in some detail. So Dante envisions hell as a great pit, with Satan at the very bottom, at the at the very center of the earth itself. Uh, and surprisingly, Satan is fixed in ice. The very center of hell is frozen rather than being in flames. It's intriguing. And in descending through hell, Dante the Pilgrim passes through many different circles or levels of the pit. Nine circles, technically, um, but some of them have um, kind of sub-levels, so that makes things a little more complicated. Now, those at the bottom of hell, like Satan, committed the worst sins, and those in the upper levels didn't sin perhaps so grievously. Uh, perhaps they sinned against themselves more than against others, or something along those lines. Now, it is interesting and surprising how Dante chooses to organize his infernal levels. So, for instance, gluttons are in the upper levels of hell, and traitors are at the bottom. That kind of makes sense, right? Gluttony does not seem as bad as treachery, if we're going to be ranking sins. But it's a little more unexpected when, uh, for example, those who sinned through lust are not even as deep in hell as gluttons are, but hypocrites and flatterers are in some of the lowest circles. Now, Dante has specific reasons for all of these choices, and I, I can't go into all of them, but it makes one think. He forces us to consider the nature of different sins. What motivates people to sin? Uh, what kind of contortions of the human soul different sins require? So Dante questions our assumptions about different kinds of sin and where the sin comes from, how it works, and what it leads to. Now, another way Dante makes us ponder the nature of sin is in his choice of punishments for each of the types of sinners in hell. 
contrapasso is the term used to describe the punishments in the Inferno. And contrapasso basically means the principle of a punishment fitting its crime. So every type of sin in Dante's Hell gets a punishment that is equal to and somehow particularly appropriate for its sin. Often the punishment kind of reflects the sin itself, or it may be somehow opposite to the sin. Uh, So for instance, in the eighth circle of hell, one type of sinner we meet is the diviners, sorcerers, astrologers, false prophets, people who wanted to see and know more than anyone else. And their punishment is that their heads are actually on backwards, and they can't even see right in front of them anymore. Kind of weird, but it does fit, doesn't it? That's that's contrapasso. Now, a lot of the punishments are much more painful or even gruesome than that, but the point is that each one fits the crime. And often, like I said, it's not the opposite of the crime so much as uh, maybe an extreme version of the crime itself, a mirror image of the sin. So, for instance, a good example is um, the adulterous lovers, Paolo and Francesca, are inseparably joined for eternity, and they're being ceaselessly blown around by a violent wind. And this reflects their sinful choice in life to uh, give in to a whirlwind of passion and be together when they shouldn't. Now, in hell, they are each other's punishment. So this really brings us to an important point about Dante's vision of the afterlife. He is holding two truths in tandem, the justice of God and the choices of man. In one sense, every punishment reflects divine justice. It fits the crime because God is a just God, an orderly God, and this is how he has created the world to work. But at the same time, Dante also wants us to realize that every sinner has chosen his own fate. Francesca and Paolo chose to be together, so God allows them to be together for all eternity. There is such a thing as getting more than you bargained for. Or, for example, in the seventh circle of hell, we meet those who sinned by committing suicide. And tragically, their punishment is to be eternally separated from their own bodies. But this was their choice, right? Quite literally, they severed their own soul from their body. And so God gives them the outcome of that choice. And they soon discover it is a miserable existence that they've chosen. But Dante sees these two realities as coexisting, the justice of God and man's free will. This is a really important question. So often, non-Christians, and plenty of Christians too, I'm afraid, see hell as this unfair, undeserved, and certainly unwanted penalty for sin, a cruel kind of vengeance against sin inflicted by a remorseless God. I don't think that's a correct understanding. As C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Great Divorce, 
all who are in hell choose it. And Dante suggests that they not only choose to be in hell, but they even choose their own punishment. Their sin is their punishment. That is the justice of God. And and this is a really important concept to get our minds around. Uh, you know, sin isn't good. It's It's not even fun. It's miserable. Sin is hell. And yet we still choose it rather than give up our free will. So often we are our own worst enemy, and Dante recognizes this. So, as outlandish or grotesque as the Inferno might sound and might be, Dante is using this imagined journey through hell to probe some crucial spiritual realities. What is sin? Why do we sin? What are the different causes and consequences of different kinds of sin? And how does sin separate us from God? Or more accurately, perhaps, how do we separate ourselves from God by our sinful choices? Now, of course, there are many more questions that need to be asked. Um, How do we get free of sin? How do we approach God? How do we become Christ-like? But for those questions, um, we'll have to wait for Purgatorio and Paradiso. Inferno is only the first stage in Dante the Pilgrim's spiritual journey, and we're going to talk lots more about what he learns and how he learns it as we continue discussing the Divine Comedy over the next two episodes. Hopefully this uh, very short and inadequate introduction helps a little bit if you're interested in reading Dante's work, which I hope you are. Um, But one last note before I conclude, because I think one more thing does need to be clear. How literally are we supposed to read the Divine Comedy? I mean, is, is Dante truly theorizing about what he thinks hell is like and purgatory and paradise? Or is all this just symbolic? Well, that's a very hard question to answer briefly, but to oversimplify, I would recommend we read the work symbolically for the most part, if the choice is strictly between symbolically or literally. Dante was a fairly confident writer, but he is aware that he is not God and does not know how the afterlife actually works. Um, So does he really believe that uh, you know, flattery is a categorically worse sin than lust, say, or gluttony. I don't think that's his point when he assigns sins to levels in hell. And I don't think that's what we should be focused on either as we read. Um, you know, do we come away with, well, according to Dante, gluttony's not too bad as long as I don't flatter anyone or whatever. I mean, it all ends up in hell, right? For crying out loud, it's not like you can get away with quote-unquote lesser sins. You're in Inferno either way. This is not a place you want to be. So, you know, Dante's whole hierarchy of sins and his principle of, of contrapasso, fitting punishments, these things are to make us think. To make us think about ourselves and the state of our soul, not to speculate about the actual literal structure of hell. 
So if that's what we mean by the Divine Comedy being symbolic, then yes, I think Dante intends his writing symbolically, and that's how we should read it. Now that being the case, I guess you might ask why we have to go through Inferno at all. You know, if the only point is for us to come to a better understanding of human nature and sin and righteousness, then why do we have to journey through hell to come to that understanding? If Dante felt it necessary to imagine the afterlife at all, why couldn't he have just done heaven? That would have been much pleasanter and more wholesome reading. Well, unfortunately, humans aren't so easily transformed as that. I think sometimes we have to see ourselves for the repulsive creatures we are before we'll even get interested in the idea of transformation. Sometimes we have to witness the ravages of sin before we'll ever begin to develop a desire for God's love and holiness. I think that's why the inferno is necessary. Sometimes the reality of sin isn't apparent in this life, but it's pretty inescapable in hell. We'll talk more in the next episode about Dante's learning process throughout the Divine Comedy, and I hope it will become clearer then why he has to journey through hell before he can go through purgatory and paradise. But for now, that's the simple answer. Um, A glimpse of sin's nature and sin's consequences is a powerful and sometimes necessary stimulus to make us move toward transformation. Oh man, you need so much more than three 30-minute episodes to talk about the Divine Comedy. It is ridiculous how much more should be said than I've been able to say so far. But I suppose I cannot restructure Unknown Friends just so I can say more about Dante. At least there's two more episodes, and we will get to talk about some brighter, more hopeful topics in the next two as we study Dante the Pilgrim's further travels through Purgatorio and Paradiso. Now, if you are interested in a more detailed study of the Divine Comedy, let me just drop um, one hint. Almost all of what I know or think about Dante comes from my wonderful English professors at Hillsdale College. So a thank you to them, first of all. But secondly, Hillsdale actually has a free online course all about the Divine Comedy that is available for anyone to take. It's just a series of short lectures with some readings and discussion questions, and it's a really helpful resource if you want a bit more in-depth guidance through Dante's work. You can do it completely at your own pace, on your own time, and actually Hillsdale has tons of free online courses if you're interested. And this is not a, a paid advertisement or anything, I just hugely respect and appreciate the college's English faculty and highly recommend them as guides through any and every work of literature. So for what it's worth, Um, If you really want a more thorough understanding of the Divine Comedy, definitely check out Hillsdale's online course led by Dr. Stephen Smith, who was one of my very favorite professors when I was a student. Uh, You won't be disappointed. So now that I have pointed you away from my podcast toward a worthier literary guide, 
that is where I will end today's episode. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you have enjoyed this quick introduction to Dante. I'm looking forward to discussing Purgatorio and Paradiso in the coming weeks. As always, I am your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wayne Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing by visiting my website, kittywayneproductions.com. Thanks so much, guys, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.